Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Prepare to gag, yeah. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Radio Gag, the weekly Gays Against Guns show. Radio Gag is your weekly update on how to end the horror that is the American gun violence epidemic. I'm Sarah Germain Lilly. And I'm Sean Stefanik. On today's show, we explore this week's big gun violence prevention headline, Mexico Sues U.S. Gunmakers. Some listeners may already know that the extreme violence of Mexican drug cartels is armed heavily with U.S. military-styled weaponry, but may not be aware of the ways U.S. gun laws actually support these all-too-easy trafficking and sale of guns. Sean, thank you for bringing us this fascinating topic, which is right at the top of the news this week. Our guests, Barry Graubert of Moms Demand Action New York and Eugenia Weigand-Vargas of the Center for American Progress, explain the interplay of U.S. gun laws and Mexican violence. First, our news update. Mexico filed a lawsuit against a number of U.S.-based gun manufacturers on Wednesday, August 4th, accusing them of actively facilitating the unlawful trafficking of their guns to drug cartels. The suit alleges that over 500,000 firearms are smuggled from the United States into Mexico every year with more than 340,000 belonging to U.S. companies such as Smith & Wesson, Barrett Firearms, Colts Manufacturing Company, Glock Inc., Sturm Ruger & Co., among others. Mexico claims these U.S. gun makers enacted certain practices that would encourage illegal weapons into their country. Mexico said in the suit that in 2019 alone, the weapons which allegedly found their way into the country contributed to the murders of around 17,000 people. The National Shooting Sports Foundation, Incorporated refuted these allegations of negligence on behalf of the U.S. gun makers, stating that the rampant crime and corruption within their own borders falls on the shoulders of the Mexican government to take care of. Before filing its lawsuit, Mexican officials said that they spent two years reviewing similar suits against the U.S. gun makers for negligent behavior. In June, Remington Arms Company, the oldest gun manufacturers in the U.S., offered a settlement of $33 million to the families of victims in the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. After it was discovered that the gunman, Adam Lanza, used the Remington Bushmaster XM-15 rifle to kill 26 people before turning the weapon on himself. Mexico is seeking an estimated $10 billion in damages, How are all of these firearms getting into Mexico, and especially when Mexico has some of the most restrictive gun laws in the world? Well, Congress is not passing federal legislation to create strong, enforceable federal gun trafficking crime laws. The federal government should also be clarifying that gun sellers must be obtaining dealer licenses and following background check laws. How is it that our government tries to keep the violence and crime from coming in, when it's caused by the very firearms which we're sending out. Sean, you've been reminding us to remember the impact of gun violence and the families and communities who face losses of every type, not just of the people, but also their sense of safety and even income, housing and dreams of a future that depended on the loved one that is gone. 
And today we look at the horrific losses communities in Mexico's have faced, especially since the early 2000s, because of the easy availability of U.S. weaponry used to arm drug cartels. We asked Barry Graubert, legal expert from Moms Demand Action New York, to give us some context on Mexico's lawsuit against U.S. gun makers. Good afternoon, listeners. We are here today with Sean Stefanik and Barry Graubert. Barry is the New York State Advocacy Lead for Moms Demand Action, and he's going to give us some context about this lawsuit between Mexico and U.S. gun manufacturers. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon, Barry. First question on the table is, why do U.S. gun manufacturers have immunity from liability, and what is PLACA? Thanks, Sean. So, yeah, the gun industry has unique protection from liability that no other industry receives. Uh, It comes out of a law passed in 2005, as you mentioned, called PLACA, the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. Basically, PLACA is a liability shield that makes the gun industry completely immune from, from nearly all lawsuits. So it leaves families and communities who are impacted by gun violence without an avenue to seek justice. Lawsuits are how we broke the hold that big tobacco had on America and how we ultimately held Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family accountable for their role in the opioid epidemic. But in the gun industry, even those organizations exhibiting incredibly reckless behavior cannot be held accountable using these approaches. Barry, what is currently happening with the Sandy Hook uh, victims' families' lawsuit against Remington in Connecticut? Uh, sure, sir. For those uh, unfamiliar, the families of nine of those killed at Sandy Hook had sued the gunmaker in a case called Soto versus Bushmaster International. That's a division of Remington Arms. Right. The basis of that was that the Remington marketing of the Bushmaster AR-15 was really touting it as a weapon of war for shooting humans. You know, not not for hunting. Right. They they had ads that said, you know. Forces of opposition, bow down. You are single-handedly outnumbered. You know, another one touted sort of the rifle's military-proven performance, and I think they called it the, the ultimate combat weapon system. Right? So the suit came, and I think Remington had hoped it would go away based on PLACA. But in 2019, the Supreme Court ruled that the, the lawsuit could go forward. And last month, a judge in Connecticut denied Remington's request to dismiss that lawsuit. Uh, so... Remington has made what I'd consider to be a lowball offer to the nine families. It was a total of $33 million or about $3.7 million per plaintiff family. Now, attorneys for the families have argued that they expect that the ultimate settlements could be $225 million and with punitive claims could exceed a billion dollars. So Remington has made this offer. Uh, The families have yet to formally respond, and that trial is set to begin in September. Looking at this now, Remington has twice filed for bankruptcy since the lawsuit was first filed, but most recently in 2020. And the plaintiff attorneys have talked about how one important goal of this suit has really to show banks and insurers that companies that sell assault weapons to civilians are fraught with financial risk. So I think that the offering of a settlement points out a few key things. First, it's important in that gun makers, for the most part, have never conceded that anything they do is wrong, right? You know, typically other industries, other companies, when they're being sued, 
they'll always offer a settlement to avoid going to trial. But the gun industry has used that slippery slope argument that if they give an inch, you know, we'll be going door to door to take away everybody's guns. So seeing them make this offer, it tells us that they know they're facing some real risk here. Second is that this settlement is probably being pushed by those creditors, right? They declare bankruptcy. So I think this reinforces that idea of showing investors and other financial institutions that the gun industry is too risky to invest in. Well, Barry, thanks for that. I know I am certainly eating popcorn while you're going over some of that information. (laughs) Not going to (laughs) lie. Meanwhile, it's interesting. So then, you know, that's what's going on within our borders. So how then does this lawsuit impact the liability and responsibility of gun manufacturers and the damage that their products do from an outside standard? Is there anything different with that? So let me preface this by saying I'm not an attorney and I'm not an expert on international law. So I'm not going to be able to give you a lot of insights into the viability of this lawsuit. But when I read the details of the suit, it appears that Mexico is using many of the same arguments that we've seen in the U.S. suits. That gun makers are using marketing strategies to promote weapons that are ever more lethal without mechanisms of security or traceability. You can see that their intent with this lawsuit is to put an end to the massive damage that these companies cause by actively facilitating the unlawful trafficking of their guns to cartels and other criminals in Mexico. And in the lawsuit, they also note that some of these weapons are being created specifically for the Mexican market. Colt sells a pistol that is engraved with the face and name of Emiliano Zapata, the Mexican revolutionary leader. Like they're not marketing that gun to sell in Nebraska, right? And and when you look at the numbers, the numbers are really striking. Uh, The U.S. ATF found that 70% of guns recovered from Mexico originated here in the U.S. And in 2019 alone, 17,000 people were murdered in Mexico using guns from the United States. So this is a strong effort, in my view. I don't know, again, from the legal standpoint, but it seems like a strong effort to do what's working in the U.S. So we're seeing... Uh, governments and organizations standing up and trying to take a, a stance to break that plaque of protection. Barry, what can you tell us about what's happening this week with uh, Moms Demand Action? What should uh, gun violence prevention advocates be doing? Thank you, Sarah. So there is a really important action that has to happen over the next week or so. You might recall in a previous episode, we talked about ghost guns. There's a measure before the ATF to put in a ruling that would ban ghost guns. And the ATF has posted this to their website for public comments. That period ends in about a week on August 15th. So we would like everybody to text the word ghost, G-H-O-S-T, to 64433. So if you text ghost to 64433 and click through it, that will bring you to a page with details and on how you can comment, what you might say in your comments, with a link right there to the ATF site. Really important. We know the gun industry, the gun lobby are out there having uh, their supporters, you know, try to stop this. But we, we can really strengthen the ATF's hand here. Great. Well, thanks again. We look forward to working with Moms Demand Action on, on reducing gun violence in this country. Thank you. So long, Barry. So long, Sean. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you both. You're listening to Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show, here on listener-sponsored commercial-free radio WBAI. We're here every Tuesday at 2.30, bringing you the latest in gun violence prevention movement news.
Next up, we have a special report on U.S. guns that are trafficked in Mexico. We invited Eugenio Wigan Vargas of the Center for American Progress to explain the problems in Mexico and how and why U.S.-made guns are at the heart of this violence. Good afternoon, listeners. We are so excited to be speaking with Eugenio Weigand Vargas from the Center for American Progress. He is the research director for gun violence. Eugenio, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. And we're here with Sean. So, Eugenio, can you describe the violence taking place in Mexico and give us an idea of the impact on communities? Absolutely. So ever since mid-2000s, violence has significantly increased in Mexico, Uh, particularly if you look at the metric of homicides. There's been staggering increase from around 8,000 homicides uh, in around 2008 to around 30,000 by 2020. And that violence uh, cl- has been clearly driven by gun homicides that, that have significantly increased in the country. So, for example, while only 25% of homicides were perpetrated with a gun uh, around 2004, uh, that percentage rose to 70% by 2019 and 2020. So guns have played a, a major role. But not only in homicides, you also see robberies taking place uh, with guns. You see particularly groups being affected. Uh, young people have been uh, killed. Uh, in Mexico. And in fact, the life expectancy of young people in Mexico has actually decreased due to the violence that's going on uh, in Mexico. Journalists have been uh, targeted in Mexico has become a huge, huge issue. Political figures. So you have mayors or candidates being killed in Mexico as well. So there's a, there's really is a, a, a very bad situation when it comes to violence. The drug cartels confronting each other. There's also the problem of kidnappings that have impacted the community and extortions uh, as well, where that has particularly affected business. So, yeah, the perception of insecurity in Mexico has significantly increased uh, from two, from the mid-2000s up to this. To a lot of people have actually left uh, Mexico and usually moved to the United States or to other other places in the country, and they cite insecurity as one of the main reasons. Wow. What attempts has the Mexican government made to address the violence? So one of the one of the attempts that happened in mid 2000s was actually a confrontational strategy. That means that, you know, uh, the, the Mexican government equipped themselves with guns and they used the military to confront drug cartels. So you also you saw you begin to see confrontations across the country. It started in Michoacán, but you, then you saw it in Chihuahua. Uh, you saw it in the state of Nuevo León, this confrontations between military and criminal groups. Well, that strategy was, to my opinion, not a very good strategy. It, in fact, increased the levels of violence. And in fact, sometimes you saw civilians being caught in the middle of that crossfire. There's actually a, a very sad story that happened in 20, 2010, where two students of the University of Tec de Monterrey in Monterrey, Mexico, were caught in the crossfire uh, uh outside of the university where the, the the criminal groups ran inside and then the soldiers started shooting inside the the university and unfortunately the two students lost their lives uh, as well uh, so this this strategy to my opinion wasn't a very helpful strategy um, other things that they that have been tried to do is 
fix some of the corrupt police agencies in the country. So, for example, there was also an effort in, Mon- in the same city in Monterrey, in the state of Nuevo León, to fix the police. There's been some mixed results there uh, as well. But overall, I, I, there's still a lot to do in terms of corruption, in terms of in- institutional capacity building in Mexico. Um, and unfortunately, the levels of violence continue to be a staggering, staggering problem. Okay. And uh, how were the U.S. gun manufacturers implicated in this violence? So one thing to, to know is that 70% of guns recovered in Mexico are traced back to, to the United States. And that percentage can actually be higher because the other 30%, we don't know. The origin is unknown, which may also it may also be the case that they also come from the United States. So some of the guns are produced within the United States, but... Keep in mind that many of the guns are also imported into the into the United States and then trafficked into Mexico. It's very easy to acquire a gun in the United States, assault weapons, for example, which are the weapons of choice for criminal groups in Mexico. It's very easy to get one of those in the United States, in fact, with no questions asked. And if you, if you look at the production of guns in the United States in the mid-2000s, they started to increase parallel to the levels of gun homicides in Mexico. There's a correlation of almost 0.90, which means it's almost an exact line, meaning that, that you know, there's definitely a relation there between the guns being produced in America and the levels of violence that happen in, in Mexico. And within the United States, for obvious reasons, border states like Arizona and Texas supply most of the guns that cross in, into Mexico. Uh, out of the 70%, uh, 41% come from Texas, and another close to 18% come from, from Arizona. Some come from California as well, but a little bit less when you compare it to Texas. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the uh, immunity of gun manufacturers and also what happened when the assault weapons ban in the United States sunsetted. Yes, yeah, sir. Absolutely. You actually hit a, a very important law. The United States banned assault weapons from 1994 to 2004. And in 2004, that ban was lifted, meaning that, you know, the commercialization of assault weapons was happening in the United States again. Um, and studies have shown a clear impact on Mexican homicides, on Mexican municipalities that border the United States, specifically those that border Texas, New Mexico and Arizona. So a significant rise on gun homicides. It was not the case for the municipalities bordering California. And the reason is that California maintained its own state level assault weapons ban. So there's a very clear relation between the removal of that weapon and gun violence uh, in Mexico. In fact, uh, you started to see political killings, meaning that the killings of candidates of ma- or mayors during that time for the first time uh, in Mexico in a long, long time. You see that you see that gun homicides were going down, and then during that period they started to go up. The same with robberies, the same with kidnappings. Um, and one of the reasons is that you know the cartels began to feel that instead of evading the government, they can start confronting the government and they can start confronting each other. And that also the guns help them divert from from drug trafficking to other illicit activities like robberies, like kidnappings and extortions. Around that same time in 2005, you had PLACA, uh, which, you know, prevented uh, lawsuits for the gun industry in, in the United States. No other industry is protected like that, you know, despite the fact that, th- that they are sometimes complicit. Sometimes, you know, FFL dealers are complicit in, in, in selling guns. 
so they are they are protected in that sense and um um you know uh it, it is clear that you know u.s gun laws do have an effect not just what happens within the country but also what happens abroad um, and also some studies have done state level analysis showing that the states that have background checks and assault weapons and limit the, the gun sales to certain periods of time, like you can only buy one gun per month, for example, and that those that prosecute straw purchasers. So those four laws uh, were linked to lower rates of gun trafficking to Mexico as well. So not just federally, but also state there's state level laws also have a, an impact on how guns are trafficked. Wow, that is incredible. Thanks so much for that. How can we support the Center for American Progress? Is there anything that you would like to say to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You can definitely go on our website and check. Um, we have fact sheets around specific policy issues like assault weapons, background checks. We also have fact sheets for every state so you can see what's going on in your state in terms of gun violence. We have reports on gun theft. We have reports on international gun trafficking, you know, the intersection of guns and hate crimes as well. There's a lot of things that people can look in our, our website and share, definitely. One last thing I, I want to say is that, and I think this is important, is that, you know, the same laws or weak laws, I should say, that facilitate violence within the United States also facilitate gun trafficking, meaning that, that, that there is there is definitely a lot that the, the U.S. can do to protect not only international gun trafficking, but those laws would also protect Americans. And in fact, they are supported by a large percentage of the U.S. population. Thank you so much, Eugenio Weigand Vargas, the Research Director for Gun Violence for the Center for American Progress. We really appreciate you being on our show today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you so much. To find out more about working with us, please go to gaysagainstguns.net or follow us at Gays Against Guns NY on Facebook and Instagram or Gag No Guns on Twitter. Also, be sure to check out our website. Come to a meeting. We meet every other Thursday on Zoom at 7 p.m. where we will be planning all kinds of great actions and protests. So please join us. Everybody is welcome at any and all gag events. You can sign up for the meeting on our website. Listeners, did you know that the so-called gun rights groups and lobbyists are funded at a level up to 10 times the funding of gun violence prevention groups? That means that every dollar that you spend to support organizations like the Center for American Progress, Moms Demand Action, or Gays Against Guns works hard to protect us all against violence. And another great way to become involved is by becoming a BAI buddy in the name of our show, Radio Gag. So, Sean, what is a BAI buddy? A BAI buddy is someone who keeps our unique volunteer-run radio show going by giving a small donation every month. Even $5 monthly contribution can really help keep us on the air here at WBAI so we can continue to bring you this live show every week. But why not contribute $25 or more monthly to WBAI? 
Just go to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. Again, that's 212-209-2950. And become a BAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening. And we are back next Tuesday and every Tuesday at 2.30 p.m. And don't forget, you can listen to our previous shows at any time on the WBAI website or on any major podcast platform. We leave you now with our fabulous political singing quartet. Sing out, Louise! Take me out at the ball game. Shoot me down at the bar. Come to the movies and watch us fall. Come to church, come to school, kill us all, go on block. Block, block any gun laws. Sell your soul, have no shame. Yes, it's one, two, three strikes. We lose at the old gun game.